Hey, I'm Adam Cook. Welcome to the Bite Britain podcast, a show dedicated to interviewing the most successful restaurant owners in the UK, learning about what goes into their incredible menus, but more importantly, what it takes to run the successful restaurant in this day and age. Sodo Pizza are a four-chain pizza restaurant in London that pride themselves on a fresh seasonal approach to pizza. Their approach focuses on, focuses on quality local ingredients, supporting local farmers, ensuring an experience few pizza restaurants can deliver. From British-made mozzarella to their high-quality locally produced sourdough bases, Sodo really do live and breathe with the ethos of freshness and quality. Today, I am joined by Sodo's founder, Dan Birch. Dan, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so, for having me. No problem at all. Perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit more about you personally and then go on and tell us just a little bit more about the Sodo brand. Um, well, me personally, I'm uh, from Wales. I've lived in London now for 10 years. Um, I kind of always had a hand or foot in hospitality despite working in other industries and quite enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, and then that took me on to basically just trying to start a business with a certain ethos and I found that pizza was the perfect vehicle for that because uh, if you want to basically be the best you can possibly be in any particular cuisine then a lot you know if it's quite broad then you're going to need to spend 10 years 18 hours in a kitchen every day whereas pizza you're basically focusing on the dough that's the most important thing and everything from there was then sourcing local supplies and having that connection so if you can just basically spend a good few years working with different flowers and ways of making pizza dough um, everything else kind of falls into place after that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And I mean, how, how long has Sodo been, been around? How long have you had the Sodo brand? Um, so Sodo, uh, it started, basically it started, um, I wanted to start some kind of restaurant business uh, when I first moved to London in 2010. And then I was in Germany and after a heavy night clubbing, we went to a pizza place afterwards, which is on the side of a canal. And I was like, pizza? I used to make pizzas when I was in university. <laughs> so off the back of that, I came back to London and was just like, right. I've got to find a way of doing this. And one thing led to another. And so in August 2011, um, I worked with E5 Bakery and Ben, ben down there. And we did a pop-up um, back when London Fields was kind of desolate. And people were happy to eat pizzas off bits of cardboard and silly <laughs> of, of, of flower bags and wait half an hour for the privilege. Um, and yeah, basically, it started then and it kind of went from there. So because one, one of the big things about Sodo is, you know, your... Um, aspiration for just locally produced or locally sourced ingredients and I think that's the thing that a lot of pizza restaurants certainly in London you don't see much of that right you, you, you see a lot around the topping and what goes on it but not many people actually talk about where the ingredients actually come from when it comes to pizzas you, you see it a lot in other restaurants but you don't tend to see it so much with with pizzas what, did that inspiration come from that trip to Germany was that was that somewhere or where, where did that where did that kind of so it was kind of a double thing so um in, basically ever since i kind of learned or basically kind of taught myself how to cook i always really liked the idea of needing as little as possible in terms of roaring you know the idea of just being able to go outside you know i grew up in mid wales like small holding in the middle of nowhere and you know bits of vegetables and stuff growing and some eggs and just the idea you could just go out there pick stuff up out of nature and then make something with it so i always wanted to kind of have that kind of idea where um, you can just go as local as possible and get the kind of rawest ingredients and create something special out of it. And then that combined with the experience working with Ben at E5, who was very much into locally sourced, organics, et cetera, et cetera, kind of brought it together to think, yeah, let's see if we can make, because, you know, pizza is traditionally seen as the Italian, but it's, you know, Italian word, et cetera. And so everybody's importing their ingredients from Italy. And obviously a Neapolitan pizza in Naples is fantastic because they've taken the tomatoes from that hillside and the mozzarella's come from down the road and the wheat's from over there historically um so it represents the area but then as soon as you move that thousand miles then all of a sudden you just it's, it's, it's just lost its essence so the whole point of pizza originally was local inexpensive ingredients so why are you going to spend a load of money importing that when you could just use the local inexpensive ingredients you have where you are i think pizza's the perfect thing for that yeah that, that's a great way of looking at it right because if you was going to make traditional pizza like you just said you know, people are going to think, oh, well, we need to get all the ingredients from Italy. But actually, 
you know, the, the, <laughs> the primary idea is to have ingredients that are local, actually, you know, traditionally. So, you know, that's not very local. <laughs> putting, a, putting a load of tomatoes and mozzarella on a shipping container and shipping them halfway around the world. Yeah. Um, and that's to be honest, we found, yeah, it's, it's, and it's not just we do local for the sake of local. It's just when you start dealing with local producers who are really passionate about what they do, it turns out they've got the best product anyway. Um, so like our charcuterie comes from guys Cobble and Cure in Islington and you know what they do is amazing they've got full traceability on their meats great animal husbandry and welfare we know that and then the quality of the final ingredient is amazing and you're like well that's as good if not better than the stuff we're buying from Italy we've got no traceability okay it's a little bit more expensive but we're happy to pay it because we know we have that kind of connection then back to where it was raised and what it's fed um, yeah. and the same mozzarella and the wheat and everything else that we can possibly get our hands on locally and and I mean, how does how does that kind of um, affect um, like things like price and stuff like that? Is it more expensive to to work with local producers? Is it is it cheaper? I mean, I mean, sometimes, how, how it, sometimes no. Well, it depends. If, it depends how you're looking at it. If you if you're going to go at a product and you're going to go right, I'm just going to hammer everybody and kind of get the lowest price everywhere I can. Okay, fantastic. You might be able to produce a half decent product, and right. most people probably won't even recognise or just happy with that. But then you know, as soon as you I find that f food and flavor experiences are often subconscious. So you might go into a restaurant and, you, and you'll eat something and then you'll leave and you say, oh, that was great, blah, 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 whatever. And then two days later, you're like, wow, I need to eat that again. That was amazing. Or the other way, which is like, oh, God, yeah, it still sticks with me. That wasn't a great meal, despite the fact at the time you thought you enjoyed it. And so if you start using good quality ingredients, that basically gives that little edge to people who walk out of the restaurant. And then the next day, they're like, I need to eat that again. That was amazing not even realizing at the time how great it was yeah no absolutely i mean one of the things that really struck me about your menu is it's not it's not your standard pizza um pizza shop menu i mean you've got your margarita on there obviously <laughs> everyone's gonna have to have that yeah but in terms of i mean do you i assume with with the seasonal produce um that you're looking at you, you really have to change your menu up quite a lot as well right it must because it changes with the seasons of course well, the, the, the menu, we basically, we'd like to have it four times a year, but at the moment we kind of have a two, uh, two changes a year, summer and winter. And then okay. it's the specials that really lead the way on the seasonal local produce. So, I mean, I would love to be in a position where we could just go 100%, we're going to eat from the earth and the ground, et cetera, et cetera, which I think we could probably do on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. um, but with the volume, we basically have to represent as best we can um, what the seasons are. Um, and so, you know, there's some things that do fall out of season here and there, but we try to but then when the season you know for example going through june everything's got asparagus on it you know going through july through september we've just got tomato fresh tomatoes heritage tomatoes on everything you know when we've got various seasons of various things coming through then we just you know say send it because we work with a couple of local growing communities and our kind of policy with those guys is um yeah just send it don't don't ask don't ask the chefs what they want just send it and we'll use it if it's in season then that's what we're going to do Sure. Yeah, because I think I feel like we, you know, as human beings in this day and age, we're just so disconnected from what seasonal produce actually is. You know, if you just ask an average person on the street, even me, to some extent, I mean, I, I, I like to think I'm a little bit educated on seasonal produce. I do kind of try to buy seasonally as much as possible, but people often don't even know what's in season. You know, things, things you just go to the shop and, you know, Day in, day out, you've got the same things on there, pretty much everything you can get from all around the world, different vegetables, different fruits. And yeah. I think it's a real shame because the other thing that, you know, I understand as well with seasonal produce, produce especially if it's local, you know, the nutrient, the nutrient density in those um, vegetables or in, in the meat is so much higher when it's fresher. Um, and, yeah. you know, how fresh is it going to be, you know, when it's been shipped in from, you know, Hawaii or <laughs> wherever it's come from? You no, know? If every time I'm in Sainsbury's, you're kind of scanning through, you're like, oh, what's this? Okay, Peru, Mexico, South Africa. It's like, why is there asparagus on the shelf in December? Why yeah. is this out? You know, just save it. Eat, basically, throughout June, May and June, eat so much asparagus, you never want to see it again for the next 10 months. And then, boom, lo and behold, just as you got over that, you can start eating asparagus in May. Same with, you know, plenty of other things. You know, strawberries. Why are strawberries on the shelf in February? Yeah, I know that's crazy, and the, and the different. I mean, that's a great example that I was actually just going to use myself there. I mean, if anyone wants an example of you know what the difference between seasonal produce. I mean, you know, if you if you walk into Sainsbury's, I mean, I'm I come from Kent originally. You know, great place for strawberries at the right time of year, but 
you know, you, yeah, you, you take the flavour of strawberries during, you know, the summertime when they're freely available versus, you know, middle of December when they're shipped in from, you know, Peru or south of Spain or wherever, wherever it is. The, the flavour is just, it's not even comparable, you know. Um, and I think, I think it's just, it just makes such a difference to, to see something like a pizza restaurant actually focused on that because I just, I don't know of any pizza restaurant that I've been to um in the uk certainly that that really has that focus it's always focused especially if, if they're like a, a pizza restaurant that's really trying to sort of pay homage to the traditional italian stuff like we said earlier it's always focused on our ingredients are from italy um yeah and, you know that's just not not local you know but in, in terms of your menu it's really interesting stuff on there where does the inspiration for the menu come from is it is it an italian inspiration or have you kind of just taken your own spin on it um, what generally happens is um, we kind of like some of the pizzas that stay for a while, some come on and off the menu, and then we have specials running. And every now and then we'll create a special and it'll go really well, and we find it's reasonably easy to put together and it's got good quality local ingredients, and that might then be added to the menu for the following year. Um, often they just like, you know, it might be a spur of the moment, let's add that, that, and that. How is it? And it's amazing. And then we're like, that's brilliant. Um, but then you've got to kind of, so. Um, then we've got that kind of that, that over the years we've had that kind of um, I like to call them the problems to solve. So we've had things on the menu where like yes we've got this wonderful pizza on the menu, but at the moment these ingredients are coming from this place. Is there any way we can get them more locally? And then we kind of solve that problem through working with a charcuterie maker or whatever it may be. And then we've got this amazing thing that we can put on the menu and say yes, it's all now UK produce. So um, it's it's a bit of a to and fro really. I mean, obviously, we're running a restaurant, so from the business side of it, you kind of want things to be cost-effective, not too difficult to prepare. Um, but then you want to have your kind of your integrity of the quality of the ingredients, and then you also want to have something which sells pretty well. So, yeah. one thing on the menu, because uh, you know we strive to get as much as possible. One thing on the menu, is on the menu, and I've tried to take it off, uh, is the blue art pizza that we do, which is tomato mozzarella, it's artichokes, olives, and gorgonzola. Now, unfortunately, the gorgonzola the olives are okay because obviously they've got to come out and the artichokes they don't fit in our criteria so it's locally sourced fresh blah 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 however it's a quite easy piece to prepare and people love it and so we're like okay we're gonna have to take the hit on this one but then that means we can put more energy into the special where we have to spend a bit more time sourcing and preparing and prep time etc so there's that kind of to and fro balance yeah sure so i mean i mean how does your kind of uh, creative process work with, with pizzas then? Do you, are you, do you often, do you, is there a lot of testing that's going on behind the scenes? I've got this like vision of you kind of just sitting in the kitchen eating all these different types of pizza, which I have to say I'm a bit jealous about, but talk us through a little bit about how that kind of, how that plays out. I mean, are you, is there a lot that goes into that behind the scenes? I mean, are the staff involved in it or is it more kind of, you just come up with ideas and brainstorm them? Well, yeah, I mean, everybody's got a bit of like freedom to kind of put the specials together. And we use the central press, the newest restaurant, where we kind of work with local farmers or whoever it may be with suppliers and say, right, send us what you've got, and then we'll make it. So, for example, over the summer, Alice at Grown Communities in Dagenham has just decided that this year she's going to grow loads of basil. And um, so we were just buying kilos and just making basil, fresh basil pesto, using like linkage poacher cheese and as much local ingredients as we could, and then send that out to the restaurant so then they can kind of add their own little twist to it. Um, so it's a kind of collaborative approach, but the main thing is to focus on the ingredients. Well, not even like, so it's like, what is available? Where's it coming from? Fantastic. You know, basically go to the suppliers and producers. We know what have you got? Send it to us. What can we do with that? We've done that with it. Now, how do we connect these flavors together and make it work? Um, sure. that's kind of then leads to what we have, which I think is quite a nice way to build it because you're not kind of trying to pull anything that's unnatural or ask somebody to do something that probably doesn't fit you're just saying what have you got send it to us and we'll make the best out of it i quite like that kind of yeah no absolutely uh, so, i mean uh, ready maybe approach. we may have already covered it but i was going to ask what what is actually is the most popular menu item is that the, the blue the blue cheese no the most popular one will be the wicker man okay uh, so tell us a bit about that so that was um so basically we've worked with cobble and cure for many years now they do our charcuterie and over the years they've added more stuff i mean some of the stuff they've basically gone out and created because we've requested it like for the cured meat pizza over the menu now now that meat all comes from cobbling cured um so for the wicker man all of a sudden we're getting lots of pepperoni and lots of inferior off them 
and we just wanted to make a really dirty pizza. And we're just like, right, tomato mozzarella, andouille from Cobble Lane, pepperoni from Cobble Lane, and finish it off with some Scotch bonnet infused honey. So it's kind of sweet and mascarpone. So it's sweet, um, meaty, cheesy, dirty pizza. <laughs> and that is the best seller across all the restaurants. And we're quite proud of that because although, okay, there's certain things like the honey, okay, it's not always coming from the UK. The Scotch bonnets, maybe not. Well, you are getting chilies from uh, Devon as well. Uh, but the meat is great from the UK and the cheese is from the UK. Um, and tomatoes in the summer are. So um, it kind of ticks most of the boxes and also is genuinely a great pizza. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, certainly sounds like Yeah, it's really good. Uh, it does sell really well. I mean, it's, it's not the kind of pizza, you know, I often find on a pizza I like a bit of green or fiber and then you get that kind of whole rounded nice light feeling afterwards that's a bit more like eating a burger where you just like it's lovely and in the moment and good for a hangover or when you're drunk or having some beers on a friday saturday night perfect yeah no absolutely and one of the things that struck me on your uh, menu as well was um the natural wine so what, what's the natural bit of the natural wine menu there what, where, where does that fit in and how does that kind of fit into your ethos um so i guess it fits in basically the same as the sourdough does in terms of so i guess to answer the question what natural wine is you've got to say what unnatural wine is and so if you're going to go to the supermarket and buy a bottle of wine then whoever's produced that needs to produce i don't know five million bottles exactly the same every year consistent throughout and the only way to do that is to manipulate the whole process so you're going to take grapes and a blend of grapes and different growers however you do it you're going to inoculate it with a certain strain of yeast to get certain notes and flavors. You're going to be adding enzymes to balance it and tannins and all this other kind of stuff and filtering the fine. So you get the same standardized product every year, but it's sterile and lacks all life. The idea behind natural wine is essentially what wine has always been and what expensive wine always is anyway, is you're taking grapes, you're squishing them, and that's it. You're letting nature do its course. You're letting the kind of natural yeast in the air take hold and start fermenting. You're letting the kind of bacteria and everything that already exists in there um, do its work. So at the end of the day, you get a fantastic wine, but it has life in it. And you're not adding, having to add or take anything away. So you're not filtering or fining it, um, you know, or adding loads of sulfites or various other things that you might need to kind of... Yeah, I was just going to get into the question about sulfites, actually, because I've got a friend who's, um, who has, a, has an issue with sulfites. It causes him terrible headaches. Um, yeah is that that's that's something that sort of comes into that as well right is that the the sulfites the sulfites they're there to kind of um prevent the wine from like going sour is that right or exactly to prevent oxidization essentially um and i mean there's a little, i mean there's a debate about how harmful sulfites are i mean i've looked at uh bottles of water before and you're like wow the sulfite levels in here are higher than would be allowed in a bottle of natural wine because you can still add a bit of because there's no certification for natural wine it's just kind of a it's a word to describe, you know, the way certain winemakers work. And it's kind of self-governed, I guess, in terms of, you know, you can't go and produce something and call it natural wine. And everybody's going to be like, well, that's not. Um, you can still add, like, certain amount of, small amounts of sulfur to natural wine and still call it natural wine. Um, I personally found that anything that kind of falls into that bracket with no added sulfur or minimum, um, the hangovers are nowhere near as bad as they might be if you're drinking cheap white wine. Um, yeah, so cool. I definitely can attest I do find there's a big difference and, and the nice thing about it is like kind of we have with our restaurants they're not, not all you know they are kind of the same but they're not desperately standardized we're not looking for exactly the same product out of every single one it's like the same with natural wines you're not getting exactly the same product out of every single bottle you're not getting exactly the same product out of every single glass. as soon as you open it it starts to change and you kind of into a bit more of a fun and interesting experience. Well, I find anyway, I, I, wine's such a massive genre. Um, I know enough about wine to know I know nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, if we're going to just tackle one area, let's just look at this bracket that calls itself natural. And yeah, you've got some stuff in there which is like, like okay, you want to call it natural, but I just, it's just absolutely fucked. He's just massively had a, an issue with it or some kind of like something nasty's taken hold and given this weird flavor, which you can't really pass off or well, you've got stuff you just you wouldn't know you just like this just tastes like standard great wine and all these other little different things in the middle that make it quite yeah. interesting yeah sure no absolutely so i'm just going to transition back towards the pizza yeah now. but i wanted to want to i want to learn a little bit more about your bases so we were having a little conversation just before we got started on the podcast um because i have got my own personal experiences um with the devil that is gluten 
Um, I, yeah. I, I struggle digesting um, gluten myself. I've, I've had, had some problems with that for, for a few years now. Um, but what I have found is what I said to you before we got started was um, that actually when I eat sourdough, I don't have anywhere near the same volume of ill effects that I actually you know, would have from you know, a standard slice of hovis, for example, or something like that. And that's, that's what you use in all your bases, right? Um, yeah, 100% sourdough. So we don't add any commercial yeast to anything. So we rely on a culture, which is a combination of heritage wheat flour, uh, sorry, heritage wholemeal flour and water, which in it has a kind of living kind of mix of yeast um, and various bacterias which produce acids. And it's the yeast within that that creates the carbon dioxide which allows the dough to rise. And it's the bacteria in there which produce acids which then kind of digest and ferment the gluten and the starches of the flour in order to make it more easily digestible. Um, yeah, it's my yeah, one understanding of, the, of this. Sorry. sorry, I just cut across you there. I think the recording cut out for a second. Um, no, I was just, just going to say, the other thing that I noticed with sourdough as well, and something that you traditionally get when you eat too much pizza, um, which is an easy thing to do, is the bloat that you get as well yeah. um, from, from eating it, you know, and you feel just like your stomach mm. is pumped up with air. That, that's something that just doesn't seem to happen with sourdough. Do you, what, can you tell us maybe about why that might be? You don't have to get too scientific, but just for anyone who doesn't kind of understand the concept, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of information on that. Yeah, well, so my understanding of the way this is, so the kind of Western civilization, this diet has been based on bread for the best part of 10,000 years. You know, we kind of make, I think there's traces of 12,000 years ago, people making bread. And for that entire history, we used something along the lines similar to a sourdough method, where you basically had some kind of culture or pre-ferment, which you then you mix with the flour and the water and you let it do its job for when you bake the bread not just producing carbon you're not just having yeast produce carbon dioxide you're having the bacteria produce the acids which then ferment everything and then somebody came along and took a bit of beer yeast and said i've got a great idea we don't have to wait two or three days to make this bread we can do it in two hours because if i chuck a load of the yeast in they're going to produce loads of carbon dioxide and the bread's going to rise rise beautifully and it's going to be really soft and it's like wow that's a great idea amazing but what you've completely skipped is the fermenting of the flour so you're just cooking it for an hour you fermented it for two hours so instead of being a 72 or 48 hour process it's gone down to a three hour process which means that all that kind of flour which traditionally our bodies have relied upon that fermentation that bacterial action to kind of break down it's just not happening anymore hence why i guess we have many more people with intolerances to gluten because um it's not been something we've been used to dealing with I mean, unless you're celiac, which I guess is a whole different level, but anybody with kind of intolerance, that, you know, as we were discussing earlier, as far as I understand, is the proteins that make up gluten, gliadin, and glutenin. It's the gliadin that gives us problems. And that's basically all but broken down after about 10 hours of sourdough fermentation. But you've got to use sourdough. You know, I know pizza places also just do a long ferment, but with yeast. So they just add a tiny bit of yeast and let the, the, the dough ferment for 24 hours. It's like, yeah, but you've not added any kind of culture in there to do the fermentation. All you've done is add a little bit of yeast to produce carbon dioxide. So still you're not really fermenting the flour. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, almost like our ancestors knew all along knew that it wasn't a good idea to just kind of eat it. Wow, with everything we do, you know, like kimchi and sauerkraut. I mean, every civilization yeah. in the world has some kind of fermenting process and they had no idea what was going on. They didn't know there was tiny bacteria in there producing these acids and breaking things down and eating things and making all the nutrients more available to us. But through trial and error, they did it and it worked. And then we invented the refrigerator and we invented these other things. And we we're like, oh, we don't need to do that anymore. We can just keep it fresh in the fridge and eat it in two days rather than finding ways of storing things for six months at a time with the help of tiny microscopic organisms which uh, work alongside us. Yeah. And I mean, another thing a lot of going back to the ingredients thing as well, you know, a lot of these kind of industrial wheats that you get now that people put into the bread. And I'll try not to go off on too much of a tangent on, on this particular subject because it is something of interest to me, perhaps more so than our listeners. But it, I, think, I think we've totally destroyed the, the concept of, of what flour is, I think, by, you know, creating these kind of like genetic modified plants that really are a pretty poor example of what we would have used to have called you know wheat and grains you know and that i guess yeah I by by you I mean, know sourcing a... locally and stuff like that is there certain types of wheat that you guys use well i mean yeah i mean there's the yin and the yang to it, isn't it i mean we managed to kind of 
feed another six billion people on the planet five and a half billion planets since the kind of idea of genetically modifying wheat came along and creating common wheat which is obviously high yielding quick growing easy to transport um so it had its purpose and it's allowed us all to live but on the flip side now you can look back and go well is it is nutrition you know we have the literally we literally have, you know we're in a position now especially in the west where we have the fortune to be able to decide maybe we don't just want something that's going to keep us alive maybe we want something that's as nutritious as possible and yeah, so yeah, yeah. We, i mean the weeds we work with we use a blend um so we work with a guy called john letts who's um, kind of reasonably well-renowned organic wheat specialist and so he's got a field of i think it's 350 genetically different um, wheat growing and he basically he's consistently ensuring it's genetically diverse because he was saying that nature basically tries to take out the weak and ensure the but then it kind of streams down diversity diverse and then we right. use that which is then stone milled so it keeps all its kind of fat and goodness in there obviously it doesn't stay as fresh as long so that makes up 30 percent of our dough uh, and the other 70 percent is a blend of uk and i guess eastern european grown organic common wheat which is roller milled uh, ship to mill is the company um, and the reason why we use that is got a higher um, protein content um, it's very right. difficult to make pizzas right. with the heritage because the protein content is so low um, we have done specialist events in the past for various kind of charity events who specialize in sustainability and local produce and it is it adds a whole dimension to the flavor it is amazing um, but you kind so, of got to balance the commercial as well so traditionally in, in in Italy, do they was would it have been sourdough that they would have used? I guess it would have been, right? Yeah, traditionally. I mean, even now, like in the DOP for Italian, they, they should be using a little bit of starter culture, but they often add some yeast as well. Um, but I mean, there's questions to be asked about Italian pizza. I mean, I guess probably we shouldn't get into that. But anyway, they're, they're big <laughs> on things like Caputo flour, which is this massive brand that's taken over, and okay. just, Italian Caputo flour is the best. It's like is it really it's not from italy it's barely even milled in italy it's got a load of crap added to it to make it as strong as possible mm. it's not that good it's not that nutritious um Sounds but like if you go up to the head just one at marketing somewhere along the line a hundred percent um whereas if you go up to the hills and kind of smaller villages or find outside naples the people there you know using locally sourced and milled wheat and it's amazing it's a completely different product it's the flavor is just insanely different I mean, we found like we worked with E5 and we went down there and just got some of the freshly milled wheat. You know, so it's still warm, straight off the stone mill. We brought it back. We made dough, let it ferment for two days, ate it. We're like, the flavor's just completely different. Mm. Um, and that was kind of one thing I wanted to develop with our concept was kind of the next door, having this idea where we could have a mill on site and we just have the grain and we'd freshly mill straight into the dough mixer and make the dough and then ferment it. Because um, I think the comparison might be uh, coffee, for example. Like 25 years ago, you just go and buy a cup of coffee, didn't think about it. Whereas now, unless it's, you know, you're going to pay £2.53 quid for it, it's going to be beans ground literally into the tamper and then made for you fresh there. And that's what you're paying for. Otherwise, it's not as good as it could be. That, to some extent, the same for making bread or pizzas. Fresh. So yeah, bring yeah. it, bring it all home. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, do, uh, do you spend a lot of time yourself in in Italy, getting inspiration and stuff like that? Not really. I've been, been a few times on pizza trips. Um, I mean, the more inspiration I get is basically working with bakers um, and other. So it's like I know what everyone knows what a pizza is. So it's like, right, how do we break down the component parts? and do something interesting with each of them so it's like right the dough how do we make this amazing first of all we look at pizza makers and how they do it okay and then we're going to work with bakers in terms of what they're doing and how they're pushing the envelope in terms of the fermentations and the hydration levels and the wheat they're using and specific strains of wheat they're using and the benefits of that and when it was milled etc and then working with all the other suppliers in terms of the mozzarella and what they're making and the meats etc um and then you know then the fun of cooking it and putting it all together and then eating it as well exactly and it's still not sick of it which is good so, so the, the mate part of the part of the concept of this podcast is to really understand your food which into, but I, I really want to try and understand the business side of things as well um i think it's a thing that a lot of a lot of channels they don't really get into the business side of things so what just to, to sort of start that off 
what is, would what you is, say, the biggest factor or decision that you've made that you feel has contributed to your success? Because, you know, clearly you've got a great online reputation, you know, you've got four restaurants now. I mean, when you look back on, on you know, your journey towards where what's brought you here, what do you feel is kind of one of the big decisions that you've made when you look back recently? You've got that decision to change the game. Um, I don't think it was any, I don't think it's one, well, I might be considered one decision, um, but treat your people well. Uh, I think just having a framework in place and paying as much as you can and making sure your staff are well looked after and support them, basically kind of look at them as you are underneath them. So you'll basically give them in the role and then you're there to support them to do that and give everything you can to make sure they can do as best as they can. So giving them as much responsibility and ownership of what they can, they have as possible. If people don't respect that or get on with it, then you've got no bones in saying, sorry, no, this isn't going to work. Um, whereas most people we found that a good bit, you know, they will just relish in that. Before you know it, they're telling you that it's better to do it their way. And you're like, that's amazing. Thank you. Brilliant. Carry on. Yeah, I think I think, yeah, so I think as as a business owner myself, I certainly something I've struggled with in the past is is, is letting go of those reins letting and letting someone else take control of your vision. Um, I think yeah. um, a lot of business owners out there that struggle with that. I know that all, almost all the restaurant owners that we've spoken to so far, you know, that that's kind of something that they hold close to their heart is making sure that their staff, you know, have that ownership of things and they're not micromanaged. It just, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's just so important, I think. And I, I think it's, it's almost impossible. How, how can you grow a business if you don't do that? I think it's just, it's just such an important factor. Um, I mean, do you, do you let a lot of your staff get involved in the, um, in the sort of menu design and stuff like that? Is that something you kind of... Anybody who wants an import has got an idea. I mean, please, I mean, at the end of the day, um, the less work I have to do, that's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, just to put it down to it, I mean, I guess I've found that genuinely I'm kind of inherently lazy and therefore every opportunity I have to kind of, I mean, share it and give it out and work with people. The most proud I've ever been of any of the businesses is when I'm not there running it and it's doing well. So if I'm, you know, when I first opened the restaurant, I was on the Clapton restaurant, I was there for, I don't know, probably 10 months, every single shift. And then it wasn't until like three months after that, and I can go in on a Friday and Saturday night, and it was running smoothly. I was like, that's, that's now you're proud. So yeah, giving the ownership to the staff and having them succeed. So there's staff, you said there might be some other key factors and decisions as well to kind of contribute to the success. Can you maybe dig into some of those as well. Um, so the staff are definitely the biggest, um, not compromising on your values. So if you've got like a the value structure we have in terms of sourcing locally and seasonally, um, that helps make decisions often. You're like, should we put this in the menu? We look at it, we're like, no, we can't. It doesn't have these credentials. Mm. Um, when working with suppliers, so sourcing good quality suppliers uh, and not being that concerned on price so it's just like look the difference to them may be slightly large compared to yourself when it's negligible when it goes on the pizza but if you're willing to you know work with them and pay them uh, what they want to receive then lo and behold on a saturday afternoon when you've just run out because somebody's buggered up the orders who's turning up to make sure you're not in the shit fantastic right. look after your suppliers so relationship management really i guess to some extent yeah just having just having everybody get on and just you know want to help and support you rather than you know, you could squeeze, you know, because I've always thought it's like, you know, yeah, I could do more hours. I could do 90 hours a week. I could take more, much more money. I could pay everybody less and we could find suppliers who are going to charge us less money. But then, okay, you're wicked. Got more money in the bank. But a stressful, horrible experience where you're constantly fighting for every single possible yeah, advance. I, think, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be some kind of, there's a trend and it seems to be, I don't know if it's maybe the, the tech industry, maybe it's some of the maybe. stories that people used to hear about people like Steve Jobs. But there's yeah. the idea that you have to be quite aggressive to be successful in business. You have to really, you know, pull the strings tightly and, you know, batter anyone that, that crosses you and all this stuff. And I think that, that there does seem to be a problem with that. And I, I think it's the tech industry that's done it, but or maybe it's things like, you know, programs like The Apprentice as well. But I think, I think, I think you've really got to go the other way, to be honest, especially when you're talking about, you know, having a, having a, a team that you trust, you know, you know, to, to trust to, the team, to trust that you've got to have them respect you, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, what do you want? 
do you want to just work all your life and have all the money or do you want to balance where you kind of enjoy work and you have colleagues and partners who enjoy hanging out with inside and outside of work and everybody's kind of happy in the arrangement yeah um, because yeah. at the end of the day you'd be doing it most of the time you might as well enjoy doing it and you know when the times get tough people have got you back and when the times are good everybody gets rewarded so and i think you know yeah. i think those kind of stories of steve jobs and people being you know obviously they're going to be well-known stories because they got to the level they did um i guess and, I, and everybody wants to tell the story of the arsehole, don't they? It's not, it's not often you can, oh, this guy was so successful. He's such a nice person. Like, yeah, well, that's the thing. It's, it's almost like it kind of, I, I don't think most business owners that are successful are arseholes. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah, but you're just not going to hear about them. It's just like, yeah. I guess that's yeah. it. Yeah. Plenty of successful business owners out there who are just shying away from the line, getting on with it, doing all right. But then it's the definition of success, isn't it? It's like, what is success? Is it as much money as possible in your pocket, or is it a nice, reasonably stress-free existence where you get yeah, to do the things you enjoy well, doing and have having a smile on your face? Is the to that, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean the restaurant industry. I mean, if you do, if you're getting into it just to make money, then you're in the wrong industry. At the end of the day, you've kind of got to enjoy what you're doing. I kind of try to look at it like a passion project. So, all those wonderful pieces of equipment and nice toys that you kind of want in your kitchen that you're just not going to afford because why would you spend five grand on an ice cream machine for your home kitchen? you can put into a business and then you can go in on a Sunday and say, oh, well, let's try some new ice cream flavors. Let's do this and do that or whatever it may be. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that, I think from all the, I haven't spoke to anyone who's kind of said that, you know, you should organize this year. And I, I think, I think it's a real important lesson for anyone out there, anyone listening that is you know, looking to get into the food industry. It's so important. So important. Just be nice. Just be nice. You know, just, just be a nice just human be nice. being. Actually treat people with respect. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's really, yeah, I find it re. I mean, there's been very few people we've had, if any, that I've had to let go. I don't think we've had any bit of had to let to go when it'd be a difficult decision. You get to it, you're just like, right, this is really easy. We've been through these stages. We told you what was expected. You we're offering this, and you've done this. So this isn't difficult. Goodbye. Um, and you don't feel bad about it. You're just like, you you did this. You know, you were given the opportunity. Um, and I find that I much prefer that approach because. Because there's been plenty of occasions where we've had somebody not been up to scratch or not performing, and we've given them the opportunity, and then all of a sudden, you're shining light number of staff who's leading the way, and you're like, amazing, look what happened there. So it's always good to give that, you know, get to the end and be like, right, I, it's, either you're going to succeed and be fantastic, or it's going to be a really easy decision. There's not going to be, oh, this is difficult. I feel so bad having to do this. It's like that. It's, <laughs> yeah, get to that yeah. point. So in, in sort of um, talking about um, sort of talked about some of the factors that contributed to your success, but I want to try and get into some of the challenges as well. So, you know, what what are some of the some of the big challenges that you've had you know, setting up and managing a restaurant? Yeah, you know, everyone knows that everyone always talks about always the restaurant industry being one of the toughest things to be in. So I'm sure there's been there's been plenty of challenges each way. Um, is there any that really stand out for you for you? Staff again, <laughs> the yeah, biggest contributor and the biggest challenge. <laughs> you know, somewhere between thirty and forty percent of our turnover in terms of outgoings. So it's by far the biggest kind of asset that we have. Um, mm. I mean, to be fair, they've been mostly problem solvers, um, but there have been those months where you just you're down. You know, you've had people go on holiday, people have left, whatever, and it's all hands on deck. Um, we've generally been very lucky. I mean, we're seeing now some differences in the kind of way the different restaurants are performing due to kind of macroeconomics, microeconomics, just changing demographics, the ways that people are spending competition. And I guess those are going to be challenges that now we're taking on. Um, I mean, from a business perspective, I guess, yeah. So the first few years, we only ever saw growth. And in the early days, myself and Enzo were running the business. Uh, we took minimal amount of money out and we're doing all the hours. So there was no problem with, you know, the bank base, uh, cash flow. Um, then we get to a stage where we're kind of not working on in as much. Uh, we're working on. Uh, and then it became, a, you know, we realized that we really needed to kind of tighten up the efficiencies of um, our hours. Because the, the fact that before that, we just relied upon growth to kind of wash over any time that we weren't being as efficient as we could with the amount of staff we had on. Mm -hmm. So that was the last year and probably two and a half years where we've really been nailing that. I feel like the next stage for us is the marketing side because we've not really done 
any. Um, and so everything we've been talking about in terms of our kind of sourcing locally and using seasonal ingredients and our kind of you know recycling policies and having as little waste as possible and all these other things uh, we don't shout about and I think we probably should because um, there's plenty of business out there shouting about it but not doing as much. When we started it was kind of a thing of I feel like if you're going to run a business it should you should be obliged to do that you shouldn't just be throwing everything into a black bag and sending it off into general waste because that's the cheapest and the easiest way to do it you should be taking the time to have your food waste separated and your glass, et cetera, and all these just little things and the chemicals you use. Um, but also in doing that and shouting about it, I always felt it's like giving to charity and shouting about it. It's like, well, you know, just, but that said, probably something should, we should market so people can come and enjoy it and know what they're having rather than just enjoying it and not realizing. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I guess those sure. are the, we've seen kind of, well, I've got some rambling on about it. There's been different stages along the way. The first was obviously realizing that staff, budget was the first thing that would put us under if we weren't careful and now it's like the importance of the marketing just to kind of once you've got the staff level great there's only so many hours you can take off the road before you start thinking now we need more customers yeah absolutely and i think you know what comes out in in the statement you just made there is, is there is not taking your eye off the ball well i think it's very very easy very, very, yeah. in day and age whether it's a restaurant or to be honest with you any business um it's very easy to become complacent you've had a bit of success right um, oh yeah and I think I think that's the that's the danger for a, a lot of restaurants. I mean, one of the one of the things that struck me, and I think I think um, quite recently it was recently, Jamie Oliver's Jamie Oliver got closed down, right? Closed down. I don't know if yeah. it was the majority of them, majority of them. But you know, that was that was that was. I watched the video. I watched him um, actually going into going into fifteen in London, restaurant and restaurant. He was literally in tears. And I can't help. I can't help. But that is a crime. That is a crime. Taking your eye off, taking your eye off. He, he, he was, he was playing with, playing with. And I did go, and I did go to restaurants a few times. A few times. And to be honest, over the years, over the years, it changed much, changed much. Um, um, the other thing I noticed, thing I noticed, is they were, they were very, 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 very large capacity, large capacity as well. And I think as and I think things have changed, changed over the years, over the now warm to warm, warm to smaller, smaller kind of restaurants and restaurants. It just goes to show, you, goes know, to show you know, someone like Jamie Oliver, like Jamie Oliver they're so successful, they're so they even need to worry. Need to worry. Yeah. Their finger, finger on the restaurant, restaurant and going to just survive. But it's just not the case these days. It's amazing. Well, I guess it's always changing. I mean, if you think about when we started in 2012, there was a kind of that first change and you had like people like Meat, Mich uh, Meat Liquor starting and like this idea of the perfect burger, which didn't really exist. I mean, you had Gourmet Burger Kitchen, that was it, maybe a bit of Byron. And then we started, everybody started doing pizzas and burgers and fried chicken. And that's now, I think in the last couple of years, you're seeing the first ones of those, which I guess is the wave after John, Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver was the early noughties, wasn't he really? Yeah. In terms of yeah. his first restaurants. Then there's this kind of small pop-up to small chain independence. Now they're starting to see the first ones either go big or fail. The question is, what is next? I feel like in the next yeah, few I years we're going to see. It's so important the to whole... pay attention to trends, isn't it? Trends, isn't it? Yeah, the whole the whole landscape is going to change as it is right now. I mean, with Deliveroo and Uber and uh, Generation Z not drinking or going out and clubbing as much and spending a lot of time online and just doing everything through a phone, so the way they order and the way they kind of dine and the way they meet and chat and communicate is kind of changed. So. Yeah, I'd be interested to see. I guess at the moment, for a restaurant like us, it's just like keep, you know, develop, work with it a little bit, make sure everything's on point, touch up where you need to, and um, have confidence in your ethos and and the product that you're you're selling. That is, yeah, people I mean, are going to want yeah, it. Staying, staying true to your values, of course, is yeah important. I mean, are you guys are you guys on? You guys have delivery services as well. You on like Uber Eats? Um, use Uber Eats at one of the restaurants, um, the one in Bethel Green, because it's quite open and spacious, and therefore it's right. quite easy. And it's kind of central, so it's it's actually reasonably busy. Um, the one in Walthamstow, we tried delivery when they first arrived, and they were, I guess, they hadn't really warmed to the area or didn't have enough drivers. It was just pointless. It was like, okay, well what's the point of us making this? There's no delivery driver to pick it up. Or if they do come, they come late. And then Clapton is a kind of very small, cozy restaurant. And obviously people are mostly getting Uber and delivery on a wet, 
Friday night at 9 p.m. when the restaurant's absolutely packed. You don't really want to soak your wet driver with a helmet on walking through the restaurant to try and it's like, well, what's the point? No, the charge right. That's done a little bit for the atmosphere, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And the charge is 30%. So you're like, well, nah, it's all right. We'll do it without. But the Bethel Green one, it, it actually works reasonably efficiently. Uber, we found, works uh, a bit more smoothly than delivery. I'm not sure why that is. Yeah, I mean, the other, the other, the other huge trend now as well. I mean, there's, there's a few big trends that, that I'm certainly seeing in the restaurant industry. One's like dietary requirements. So obviously, you've got, you've got annoying people like me that ask whether or not to have about, about the content of gluten in, in the clothes and stuff. But then you've also got things like veganism, veganism taking off. I know she's got, I know she's got a vegan pizza in there. But it's just, it's just times are really changing. People are taking pain so much more now to what they're actually, what they're actually mouth, mouth. Um, um, and I, think I just wonder when, when nutritional value is going to take off. Is that you know? But people talk about okay, intolerances, fair enough. People can't eat certain things when they're genuine. Like I think it was a kind of a craze a couple of years ago where everybody decided to go gluten free, despite the fact they had no idea what gluten was or what the hell they were doing it for. <laughs> Which is like kind of counterproductive because as soon as like the classic thing is like you take something out, what are you putting in? So if you're going to take a load, if you're going to take gluten out of something and then you know gluten-free bread, oh, I'm going to have gluten-free bread. And mate, it's like it's got 35 ingredients. Why are you eating that? Yeah, no, that. Do you know what? I, actually, I even gluten-free bread. I actually can't eat gluten-free bread either because it actually causes me just as many problems as a as like a standard slice of hoses, to be honest with you. Because it's like exactly three quid for a tiny little <laughs> loaf of. Yeah, exactly. It comes um, in those weird like inflated packets, you know, it's in the supermarket. Like I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> but you know, I don't have that. But then I guess, you know, um, and then obviously veganism, um, which uh, I, you know, people, I guess in the last couple of years has been done mainly for environmental reasons. Obviously, before mm. then there was environmental and ethical, blah, blah, blah. Uh, seems to be the kind of environmental reasons, uh, which I also think is, that, well, if you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, understand that you don't have to completely give up all animal products, but minimize your footprint because, you know, there are things you can eat which haven't got a horrible footprint. But I mean, are you yeah, really going to? You can be a very, have a very big carbon footprint. Exactly. All of a sudden, you're importing bloody avocados and almonds and coconuts and everything from Southeast Asia and South America. You're like, well, what's wrong with that sheep that grew up on that hill in Wales? I mean, yes, it's, it's, nothing else is growing there. It's a bloody windswept hill, and that seems to have done all right. Uh, what's wrong with the chickens that run around in? Uh, I guess you know, on smaller scales, and, and you know, free-range chicken. I mean, it's it's a balance, isn't it? But I still feel like we, everybody's kind of not got to that point of nutrition. It's like, what is the most yeah, nutritious? Yeah, yeah. Whilst also question, having this view of having an ethical and an environmental conscious kind of element to it, what about eating the stuff that has the most value to us? Um, Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, this is, this is something that gets me because this, you know, you get traditionally there were things like dieting and stuff. People talk about, we're going a little bit, going a bit but that's fine. But that's my opinion. Um, people talk about you know cutting calories for example okay and we, we know that you cut calories out you're going to lose weight well, it makes sense but at the same time you need to think about what is what's, what's, what is your body actually asking for asking you for when it when you're telling you it's hungry it's not asking you for calories. it's not asking you for a certain vegetable it's asking you for nutrition yeah the question more comes down to how much nutrition is in every calorie that you eat. if you're eating empty calories if you're eating Rice crackers, rice crackers and stuff like that with absolutely like <laughs> yeah. no nutritional value and you eat a thousand calories of rice crackers guess what your body's going to digest that and it's going to say hang on a minute i didn't get any of that nutrition i wanted can you eat something else and you're going to be hungry and then you're going to overeat <laughs> it's like it, people seem to miss that it's like if you actually took into account the amount of nutrition in the calories that you're eating and whether the food's like you know locally sourced by so it's going to be it's going to have the most nutrition possible you know, if you take those kind of things into account you're not only going to eat less calories, but you're actually going to you're actually going to be satiated, right? And you're not you're not going to want to overeat because your body's actually going to get what it's telling you it wants when it's hungry. Hundred percent agree. I mean, Michael Pollan said it best when he's kind of like, right, here's the rules for eating: uh, to, to eat not too much, mostly plants, and what's the other one he said? Uh, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And you're like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I in the last five years, I mean, I've discovered the power of an apple, and I know everybody's different. Like I'm going to spread this to as many people as I said. It's like, you know, you know, you get that slump in the middle of the afternoon. You might have had a coffee, a bit of a shitty sandwich for lunch, and you're feeling a bit groggy. Like, oh, do I need something coffee? I don't feel that hungry. Or oh, a bit of cake. Or oh, eat an apple. I'm like, boom, I am feeling great. Literally just amazing. 
and I wish I'd discovered it while I was at uni because all those times I was oh, a bit hungry and a bit lacking it. I'm gonna have a coffee and a bit of cake, and that just makes you worse. Discovered yeah. eating an apple yeah. in the afternoon, you're just like, that's amazing. I mean, I just swear by you know fruits and vegetables. Yeah, I just eat a load of cabbage or broccoli. I ate a lot of apples, I have to say. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's not good if you're hungry and you need to eat, then it's not good. But if you're just a bit like, oh, I feel a bit, you know, like I'm lacking energy or feel a bit hungry, perfect. But, you know, and, they're in, and they're in season right now. Is that correct? They are, yes. Uh, but, you know, that's something I can, I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's sat on a room full of argon <laughs> for the last six months. It's still going to have, the, you know, still going to do me better than eating a bloody chocolate bar. Absolutely. But there was, a, there was a guy I remember listening to. He had a podcast. He was talking about his diet. Um, he said he had a very strict diet. And basically, he put all foods into three food groups. And there were things that make you feel good, things that make you feel neutral, and things that make you feel bad. And first of all, you just need to work out, basically have a bit of kind of conscious effort to realize the effect that eating certain things has on how you feel when, it, you, know, when you eat it, et cetera. And then just eat more of the good stuff and eliminate the bad stuff. So that's kind of what I started doing. And then that's when I realized that eating cabbage and apples and broccoli and, you know, any fruits and vegetables, I felt great and bouncy. Um, certain, you know, eating a burger at lunch, although it might be tasty and delicious, I'd feel terrible afterwards. And then plenty of things just sat in the middle where you're like, well, I don't feel any better or worse, but I'm fed. So that's fine. And I enjoy that. I mean, I think there's a lot of profit in making health complicated, to be honest with you. you know, if you well, of course there is, yeah. <laughs> history and, you know, what actually got us here, what, what enabled many generations to evolve us over millions and millions of years to end up so we're actually alive now, um, then I think, I think it would be a much easier <laughs> way of looking at it than yeah, kind of said, you know, we are... Weight Watchers or whatever it might be that comes along, you know? Bizarre, bizarre position we've got to as a human race for the first time in our history of... 200,000 years, the biggest killer in the West is overeating. When up until, you know, 50 years ago, the biggest killer was undereating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's a, great, that's a really interesting point, actually. Um, so, overeating. so, well, yeah. Just getting into, you talked about one of your habits was eating an apple. So, that was one of my, my next questions for you, really, was, you know, trying to understand a little bit more about, you know, getting yourself to a point of success. One of the big things that's important for, all business owners really, to have some good habits. Habits. So, yeah. so what are some what of the are biggest habits that you feel habits. contribute to the success of not just your restaurant, just but I guess you in general as a as a business owner? Habits. Um, being positive with staff as as often as you can be and as much as you can be. Um, yes, I think that's an important thing to drill home to our listeners. There is just like keeping. Yeah, you can be happy. happy. So important. Exactly. Third time this you, come you can be having a bad day, feeling a bit shitty, whatever it is. Um, but if you, as soon as you walk into the restaurant and see those members of staff, you can, you know, positive, ask a question, see how they're doing, shake the hand, you know, have, you know, bring that positive energy to the room rather than being, you know, and it's a conscious effort. You can quite easily be negative. And, you know, that's something that's practiced through habit, I find. Um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the most helpful. And then maybe doing a little bit of exercise in the morning because that gets your endorphins going. So then you can actually leave the house with a bit of a skip in your step. That was one of the things I was going to say, like morning routines. Certainly, yes, that's one of the things that's been transformational for me in my own personal sort of business and life as well, is just making sure that you've got a routine that you stick to each day, right? Yeah, at least, I mean, I just find just getting up and doing something, is, you know, as soon as you get out of bed, whether it be some pull-ups or press-ups or a jog or squat, whatever, just something just to get you going and the difference is amazing just you got the blood pumping and you, you, you can start the day and i and i got you know a coffee in the morning but that's for me it's like it has to be done <laughs> i can feel my mood <laughs> i'm with you there as I drink the coffee. i'm with you there if i don't have a coffee you don't want to be yeah. around me <laughs> and I, I never realized that it was you know it's a psychological as well as a physiological thing you just go from like feeling a bit shit to actually positive um but i'm sure that there's plenty of coffee coffee companies out there will sing that <laughs> i'm sure there are yeah no, absolutely you know, one, one of the other big things i think is well you know getting making sure that you're active in the mornings is, is really important like you say and actually actually it's also important to think about what you shouldn't do as well so for example i mean i, I actually um went to a talk last night about digital distractions and things like avoiding jumping straight on facebook when you wake up in the morning <laughs> and stuff yeah like that. that's another great one that's kind of big 
That's becoming easier though, isn't it really? Because I guess Facebook, I mean, for me, I mean, I mean, do you use Facebook anymore? I mean, is that becoming a, or is it just me? <laughs> no, well, it's more I'm, Instagram I, these days, isn't it? Yeah, I think I'm even, I think I'm finding that I just don't use those that much. I never really got into them. Um, and I go through spells, yes, and then find myself, look, and I, I remember I stopped using Facebook because I spent, you know, as you said, doing the thing you shouldn't do, get up in the morning, have your coffee, sit down before you leave. I just look at Facebook, scroll there for 10 minutes. You're like, wow, I just learned nothing and that was a complete waste of my yeah. time i, I learned what someone i used to go to school with i don't talk to anyone has lunch yesterday yeah. yeah exactly like i'm just deleting this off my phone that's no point i guess the instagram we've got to have for the business but i've got somebody else you know one of the other guys does that so every now and then have a look at that but again on instagram you're like you might learn a little bit more but still i've really not gained much so just have a nice book to read isn't it really no absolutely podcast yeah, listening to yeah, this listen. podcast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to um, teach yourself uh, something. So, I mean, so, in, I mean in terms of um, in terms of people, terms that, of people, you know, a lot of our listeners are people that are looking to get into the food business. Perhaps they're already just getting into the food business and kind of starting out with their their, their food idea or concept. What what piece of advice would you give to anyone who's considering entering the restaurant in the restaurant? Good question. Um, I guess make it a no-brainer. So whatever your concept is in the terms of the location you're offering your products, you just got to be 100% confident that's going to work and just basically do your due diligence. Um, I mean, when I first started, I remember people telling me the stats on restaurants failing. I was like, cool, yeah, that's good. But I basically, you know, obviously it can fail, but I've looked at every possible eventuality down to the point where if I have to do 90 hours a week in here, forcing people to buy this, we're going to make it work. Uh, so I think that's so kind of... That tenacity, so that. Yeah, just having that confidence that it's going to be, it's going to work. You know, you might want to, you, you might get to a certain point, you're going to take a punt, but it's got to be an educated guess. You've got to, you've got to at least, you know, see it working. Um, and, you know, you can, this, I mean, that's the nice thing about now. You can kind of trial things out. You can do little pop-ups or whatever it might be. Get, you know, get these. And obviously, you've got to kind of look for the subconscious feedback because if you're giving people free stuff or selling it, you know, it's a little small environment. People are going to obviously tell you it's fantastic. And some people might be able to give you more constructive feedback and tell you the negatives. But, you know, has everybody eaten everything? You know, how much did you sell? You know, just those little, those little details which give you a clue as to what people actually felt about it rather than what they told you. Um, but yeah, and I mean, some of the advice I got when I was, people were saying like, well, you know, if you take any, you know, the money you're investing, pretend that that was your mother's savings and you have to pay her back. Oh, wow. Like, well, <laughs> that's quite hard, but I guess that kind of works. I mean, yeah, but the main thing for me was just, cut, you know, just looking at every possible angle, you know, what, what is the minimum amount we need to turn over in order to survive? And that means us being on a subsist, you know, whoever's running, having enough money to pay rent. Because uh, then once you survive in there and you can add, you know, once you're going, then you can start seeing what you need to do to build it. Um, but if you haven't made those calculations first, then all of a sudden, you know, oh God, we can't pay rent this month. Well, you should have known that in the first week, the amount of money you're turning over. Right, yeah. Right. Just like pay, paying attention. Pay stuff. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really, yeah, really it's interesting. Really, I think, one of the one of the big things that people don't do is they run away they run away with an idea and they don't actually pay attention to what you said earlier like feedback so so i think i think a lot of people know if their business is going to work way before it goes down the down the drain right 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 or if they change but some people i think i think another problem is people stay too locked into an idea and are not willing to to listen, to listen to people as well. And I think that's a really important thing is listening to the feedback of, you know, particularly customers as well, right? You need to, you need to speak to the customers on the floor and talk to them and find out what they're, find out what they're like and find out if, find out if the pizza restaurant down the road was more interesting than that one or whatever it might be. You know? And I think, I think sometimes people, sometimes people pay attention to their customers, to their customers. Yeah. Restaurant owners, they, they kind of sit there behind the scenes and they don't actually go out onto the floor and talk to the people that, you know, actually eating their food. Yeah, I think that needs to be taken in a whole, like kind of more of a kind of uh, a wider scale. So like the, the, the feedback one customer might, might give will be very specific to them and sure. maybe not 
completely relevant to the business. But if you can basically develop, you know, kind of bring in ideas and trends and put together lots of pieces of people's feedback, then you can create a kind of bigger kind of picture of what might be needed. Because as I said, I think eating is very subjective and yeah. it, you know, depends on your mood or the smell, your company on how much you're going to enjoy that particular meal. Uh, and it's also subconscious as well. So I think gaining as much information as you can um, and then using your, I mean, because at the end of the day, if you're setting up this business, it's kind of your vision and your idea and you've kind of, you know, this is what you want to do. You kind of, you can't just be kind of swayed in a massive direction because a couple of customers, oh, you should do chips. I'd come here more often if you did chips. It's like, well, yeah, that's fit with anything. So that's not what we're going to do. However, that's interesting information because maybe we could offer something else that kind of fits that or maybe you now understand that maybe we need to appeal to a different, whatever it may be. Um, but just taking as much information and using that with your own compass. Data. I think data. Yeah, using the feedback and the data and then working that within kind of what you want to do and don't be afraid to make changes if necessary as long as it fits in with the ethos. I remember one good piece of advice I got was somebody was saying, if you're going to make a, when you're running a business, if you've got to make a technical call, then whoever is the most qualified in that particular area, you should follow their advice. If it's a judgment call, then you of the entrepreneur have got to make the final call, no matter what everybody else is saying. Because if you don't, then there is no more leader of this ship. You're just letting anybody kind of take judgment calls when you are the one that's got to make the judgment call. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, but you were wrong. If somebody else is wrong, well, you're fucked, really, because now, now what? Yeah, no, <laughs> you have to be confident in your decision making. Yeah, and you know, you're wrong, so what? Get it right yeah, next I mean, time. You're, you're going to get stuff wrong. I mean, that's, that's the other yeah. thing, right? I think, a really important bit of advice there is you know, don't be afraid to make a decision because you might get it wrong. You know, you're going to learn from that, learn to move on. But, you know, the indecision is actually probably even more damaging because you don't do anything, you don't do anything. and nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, and you're best off making lots of little errors rather than a catastrophic. Because you're gonna, yeah. you know, you can alter and change the little errors, but the catastrophic one might be too big. And the way you get to a catastrophic one is by indecision, as you were saying, and then maybe holding back too long, and then all of a sudden, you are where you are. Yeah, no, absolutely, so powerful. Well, look, Dan, thanks so much for your time. We're coming to the end of the interview now, um, but before we before we kind of sign off, wanted to ask you kind of tell us a little bit about what might be next for Sodo, anything you've got in the pipeline, um, anything we can look out for? Um, well, from the business point of view, I mean, we're now, I think, gonna work, embark on uh, trying to get the message across about what we do in terms of the sourcing and the ingredients and kind of make that a bit more exciting so people kind of can understand it and buy into it a bit more. We're always looking to, as I say, solve the problems in terms of the things, items on the menu that don't 100% fall into our ethos. So we're looking to kind of tweak those and adjust those and find suppliers who'll solve that. And then the future concept is kind of trying to work, as I mentioned earlier, kind of work on this idea of bringing the kind of milling of flour closer to the dough making process. Um, but that's a little bit down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, but then I guess these, when you get, you know, if you look at from the, from a, from a business point of view, when you start doing these things, the amount of cost and effort, um, uh, to, to really get the most out of it, you've got to let people know about it. Because as I said, it's a subconscious thing often and subjective. So if people don't know that this has happened, they're not really going to appreciate it. Whereas if people understand and see that's happening and the lengths you've gone to to get the best, then they can fully appreciate it. Rather than it just being, oh, that was pretty tasty. It's like, oh yeah, that was tasty because, and that makes me feel better as the whole, because I know where it's come from and it's the traceability aspect and it's great and it's local, et cetera. So basically trying to do more of what we're doing because as I see, you know, as when we have meetings with the guys, it's like we're better now than we were six months ago. And in six months time, we're going to be better than we are now. So always trying to progress. Awesome way to look at it. Well, thanks very much for your time, Dan. Um, just before we close off, um, just tell us a little bit about where people can find you on online. So obviously we've got your website and social media channels, all that stuff. Where, where can people find you if they want to find out more about Sodo? Um, yeah, I guess the main thing at the moment is our website, which needs a lot of work and more information putting on it. But the Instagram is pretty active. Um, I guess pizza is a very uh, Instagrammable product. So, I mean, Soto pizza, yeah, Soto Pizza London. So check us out there. And then we've got, let's say, four restaurants in East London. And then a wood fire trailer, which kind of does it rounds every now and then. 
and we find interesting and fun places to do it. Awesome. Which is the most fun. Cooking with wood is the most fun. Uh, does it give any benefit to the flavour? Negligible, but just having that fire and that kind of, you know, that's when pizza's at its, at its rawest and most fun, I find. Absolutely. I'm with you there, 100%. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dan. And thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you very much. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for listening to Bite Britain. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bite Britain and also subscribe to us and watch the video version of this interview on YouTube so you can get updates on future releases and more importantly, exclusive opportunities to win prizes from our awesome guests.